common subgenre of the action movie is what uh, some people dub the tournament film. This is basically an action movie where the protagonist enters a fighting contest where they then engage in a series of incrementally more difficult uh, matches against people until they fight the uh, the big bad in the in the climax. Yeah, from the from the jump, it's pretty apparent why this is a popular um, uh, format and formula for the action movie because you don't have to bother to explain why he's punching so many faces. He's in a face punching contest, and he has to prove that he's, you know, the best at punching faces. It saves a lot of time. You can have a uh, swift act one. Now, this um, this format is basically epitomized by the Bruce Lee vehicle uh, Enter the Dragon from 1973. It's the best version of this premise, I think, and it's the last movie that Lee made while he was alive. So it's achieved a sort of legendary status. However, the people who really got it into like a scientific point-by-point -point formula is the Shaw Brothers studio who put out dozens, if not hundreds, of variations on this. Uh, I think the strongest is the Jimmy Wong Yu uh, film Master of the Flying Guillotine from 1976. Uh, it's pretty well known because uh, RZA uh, mentions it in a bunch of Wu-Tang songs and also the game developers for Street Fighter based on um, uh, the character of Dalsim on one of the, on one of the fighters. Uh, the best American version of this film is often argued to be um, uh, the 1988 film Bloodsport, which is the best thing that Jean-Claude Van Damme ever did. And uh, Van Damme uh, is a sort of uh, precursor to uh, the film that we're talking about right now, because in the early 90s, uh, Midway, a video game publisher, was approached by... Um, a film studio to do a tie-in game to the Jean-Claude Van Damme film Universal Soldier. The studio um, eventually uh, couldn't come to terms uh, with uh, the developer, and they went with somebody else. The game ended up not getting made, but um, two uh, mid-game uh, midway designers, Ed Boone and John Tobias, uh, took some of the groundwork that they did for that unmade uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme video game to do uh, Mortal Kombat, what eventually became that. And it was uh, initially developed to compete with the uh, 1991 Street Fighter II, but became massively successful uh, and uh, spawned a multimedia franchise, which led to this 1995 film that we're talking about. One of the more interesting things about this movie is that I think it tries to reverse engineer the tournament film premise because it lends itself very st easily to a video game, the way I described it, incrementally uh, more difficult opponents until you fight a big bad at the end. And uh, its attempt to turn the tournament game into video game back into a tournament movie is, uh, I would say it's uh, mixed results at best. So we're going to do sort of a... 30 years later post-mortem on this film, uh, what worked, what didn't, and how it influenced everything that came afterwards. Uh, my name is Ryan, and this is A Real Deep Dive. Joining me on this episode is my brother-in-law, Peter Cronin. Say hello, Peter. Hi, how's it going? Um, before we uh, jump in, uh, I think it would be fair for you to plug your own podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, I am one half of the hosting team for the Fearless Films podcast, developed uh, by me and my best friend, Kevin. Uh, the point of our podcast is Kevin loves movies and he loves storytelling, but he's too scared to watch horror movies. And I am a horror movie buff. So every week I review a movie for him. I detail the plot breakdown and the behind the scenes info. 
And we go back and forth kind of riffing on it and discussing what we find interesting about all these horror stories. Uh, so it's a podcast that's for both horror fans and non-horror fans, hopefully trying to get more people into the genre. Thanks, Pete. Uh, so Pete is very adept at bullshitting about movies, but he has lately um, done that about uh, horror movies. That being said, he is he is also a gamer. He is no stranger to these waters. I did not have to lend him my copy of Mortal Kombat on DVD. He had one. That is correct. <laughs> Uh, before we got started, he mentioned it was one of the oldest ones he had. It was one of those uh, DVDs from, like, 1996 that brags about having interactive menus and subtitle options. I'm not even sure if mine has subtitle options. I had to just listen like a peon. <laughs> okay, so before we get into uh, Mortal Kombat, in case you pick, clicked on a podcast about Mortal Kombat and don't know what it is, uh, I thought I could give you some background on what the game is. Uh... It was developed over the course of 10 months in 1991. Uh, Boone and Tobias based it on their fondness for a 1984 game called Karate Champ. Uh, the, the characters in the game are digitized sprites based on real actors that were filmed doing the moves in front of them. Uh, except for Goro. Uh, he's the four-armed mini-boss that you fight right before the main guy. He's a uh, stop-motion claymation. Uh, this isn't the first video game to uh, use this technique. Uh, Midway had done it a couple of years ago with the 1998, uh, 1988 um, run-and-gun game NARC. But uh, Mortal Kombat is by far the uh, most prominent uh, uh, video game that uses this, uh, uses this technology. Uh, according to Boone and Tobias, the gore uh, that Mortal Kombat is known for was not something that they had uh, come up with from the onset. It's something that sort of gradually worked its way into the contours of the game as they went along. Uh, the fatality, which is the most infamous aspect of the game, uh, arose from uh, fighting games such as Street Fighter uh, having sort of a dizzy effect. That would be if you punched your opponent and hit your opponent enough times in an impressive succession. They just sort of stand around, kind of dazed, with cartoon stars going around their heads sometimes. You'd get a free hit. Uh, Boone and Tobias didn't really like this effect, but they found it satisfying. So their thing was that if you beat your opponent, at the end your opponent just sort of stands around, their head lopping around, and if you executed a series of elaborate button combinations, your character would then dispatch your opponent in a variety of grisly fashions. Um, one character pulls their head off and then breathes fire on them and then they burn the cinders. Another person turns into a dragon, like eats their torso. It's, you get the idea. Uh, all the violence is really over the top and gruesome. Enough blood for five people would come out of one person. If you blew them up, like five skulls would like just plop down on the stage. Uh, this game was insanely popular. I was 10 years old when this film came out, and um, I think that's the exact age you have to be to both understand the ridiculous lore of Mortal Kombat and somehow be able to take it at least somewhat seriously. Uh, the game was very controversial in its day. It um, wound up uh, resulting in Senate hearings about how video game violence could uh, negatively affect the dispositions of children. This is very similar to uh, congressional hearings in the 1930s about film, uh, ones in the 1950s about comic books, and um, 
has a couple of shared threads with uh, hearings in the 1980s about controversial and explicit lyrics in pop music. Uh, the Senate hearing was led by uh, Herb Cole and Joseph Lieberman. And while, like the hearings I just mentioned, they didn't result in any kind of legislative, uh, legislative action, uh, they did scare the video game industry into developing a uh, ratings code. Um, content warnings were added by an organization called the Entertainment Software Ratings Board, which I believe is still active. It is, yes. Um, and I'm a few years younger than you, so from my perspective, it was just always there. Uh, I have an older brother around your age, so I was exposed to Mortal Kombat much younger than I should have been. But I'm okay, I think. Yeah, these hearings happened in 1993, and while I did notice that suddenly video games had to tell me you had to be 17 or over to play them, this did not have any effect on my ability to uh, rent or buy a game. My parents did not give a shit. Um, none of the retailers seemed to care, uh, but there are people out there who enforced it a little more, um, a little more aggressively. Some parents who were a little uh, less cavalier than my own. Uh, and the, uh, the hearings did not have an effect on the success of, uh, uh, of Mortal Kombat. Uh, Mortal Kombat 2 debuted in 1993, the same year as the hearings. And Mortal Kombat 3 came out in 1995, not coincidentally when this film did. Uh, Mortal Kombat 3, I mean, there was a sort of a storyline in the first two, but the third one laid it on a lot thicker because they knew at this point that Mortal Kombat was going to start having like spin-offs, not only comic books, but this film, probably TV shows afterwards, hopefully a franchise of films for the investors in it. And uh, yeah, it's all goofy as shit, which is... Uh... <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You mean to tell me the video game featuring a Native American character who turns into a wolf is goofy? Yeah, uh, this kind of gets me to something I was going to talk about a little further later on when we got into the themes. It's just that um, it kind of reminds me of uh, something brought up in a Todd in the Shadows video about the one-hit wonder uh, Kung Fu Fighting by Carl Douglas. Uh, the thing about Kung Fu Fighting is that it's, it's, it's not by a practitioner of Kung Fu. It's by some dude who like watched a movie and thought those guys were really cool, and then he made a song about it. That's kind of what Mortal Kombat is in video game form. <laughs> it was like uh, I, I looked into Boone and Tobias's backgrounds. Um, I don't think either of them had much experience with martial arts or uh, Eastern spirituality or anything else, but they were just like, "Hey, yin yangs are cool. Let's throw them in this game." Yin Yangs are all over Mortal Kombat. That is no no exaggeration. And um, I don't think Taoism has much to do with turning into a dragon and biting off someone's torso. Probably not. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert. I've I, I, I've only read the uh, Lousy a couple of times, <laughs> but um, no, nothing about biting torsos off. But hey, let's 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 get into uh, the plot recap of the film. Okay, Mortal Kombat strikes an interesting balance between incredibly simplistic and far more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, for one thing, it has three main protagonists. Yep, all from very different backgrounds. And it has to spend time establishing a character arc for all three of these protagonists. And um, that uh, that chews up a lot of space that could have been used for face punching. <laughs> 
I mean, even with that, too, only one of them really gets a real story. The other two give you just enough to be like, okay, these are people, I guess. Yeah, we will be getting into that, how half-assed the other two character arcs are. <laughs> but, um, okay, before we get into that, uh, Mortal Kombat is a tournament between Earth and an interdimensional hellscape called Outworld. And for reasons that are never fully explained, uh, if Outworld's champions win the Mortal Kombat tournament ten times in a row, they get to conquer Earth. Earth is just theirs. Seems fair. Yeah, and uh, when this movie begins, Earth has lost nine times. They, they, they need a W. Yeah, and here's a question that I really didn't understand from the movie itself. Um, do, so they say they have to win ten times in a row. So if we win one, do they have to win win ten more times again now, or do they just need one more win? Well, uh, that is something that we will bring up with the uh, movie's ending, <laughs> because not only are the rules arbitrary from our perspective as an audience member watching the film, but it's also for people who are characters in the film. <laughs> but uh, anyways, uh, Raiden, an alarmingly Caucasian Chinese storm god, like, this is the whitest Chinese storm god of all time, uh, he has decided to surreptitiously nudge our three protagonists into competing in Mortal Kombat because ancient Cambellian prophecy about how they're the heroes who are going to save everything. Uh, the most prominent is Liu Kang. He belongs to a vaguely defined sort of uh, warrior monks. Uh, he had issues with them and left. And while that happened, uh, Shang Tsung, who is the head of Outworld's... Um, like, Mortal Kombat Olympic fighting team. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, uh, he fights and kills Chan, Liu Kang's brother, and also steals his soul, because Shang Tsung steals souls and derives powers from them, which, among other things, allows him to shapeshift. Uh, Liu blames himself, because of course he does, and he wants revenge on Shang Tsung. That's his character arc, and he is the most concretely developed one. And bringing up the arbitrariness of the rules again... Shang Tsung, when he absorbs the souls of fallen warriors, it seems he gains their power, but that's not, like, an issue. He still is allowed to fight in the tournament against normal power-level one fighters. Pretty sure Outworld, like, wrote the rules for Mortal Kombat, and they just sort of showed up, like, like the uh, version of, like, conquistadors coming to Mexico and claiming that they're gods so they can steal all their gold. Eh, that makes sense. That sounds right. You're like, yeah, this rule, we, we beat you in the fight ten times and we own you. <laughs> okay, uh, our next protagonist is Johnny Cage, who is a character in the game that was um, sort of a nod to Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, not only that, but uh, uh, Cage's uh, signature move is that he does a Jean-Claude Van Damme-style split kick and then punches you in the balls, just like Van Damme does in Bloodsport. Anyways, um... Cage is a really douchey actor guy, and um, he dislikes that people think that he's a Hollywood phony who doesn't actually know how to fight. He um, he gets into um, a tizzy on the set of his latest movie and walks off. Uh, the director tries to talk him down, but he leaves anyways. Uh, weirdly enough, I encountered that uh, apparently the director was supposed to be a cameo for Steven Spielberg, but at the last minute he had to pull out because Steven Spielberg had better shit to do than be in Mortal Kombat. <laughs> 
I did think he looked vaguely like him, but chubbier and less professional looking. So yeah, uh, Raiden sort of insinuates, hey, you can prove yourself in Mortal Kombat, and that's enough for Johnny Cage. Our third character is uh, Sonya Blade. She is a um, vaguely defined law enforcement agent who is pursuing an Australian crime lord named Kano. He's uh, an Australian dude with a little piece of metal and a red eye. And uh, Raiden sort of tricks um, Kano into going on to like the boat for Mortal Kombat, and Sonya Blade follows him, and that's how she enters the tournament. Yep. She's, yeah, she's just hunting him down at a nightclub. There's a shootout. Nobody reacts in the club. They all just keep dancing, and then Kano gets away, and Sonya's like, well, I'm going to follow him. Okay, so that was a long first act. All three of our protagonists are now on the boat. Shang Tsung in, uh, introduces himself, and then he mentions uh, he has two mind-controlled henchmen who are Sub-Zero and Scorpion, two, uh, two people that he uh, introduces as enemies, but since they're under the control of my mind powers, they work for me now. Uh, this really marginalizes them, which is odd, because if you are familiar with the games, they are star characters. We will be talking about that later. <laughs> okay, after they arrive... Um, they start getting sneakily followed around by an awkward 1995, uh, Windows screensaver that is known as Reptile. <laughs> also, um, Liu Kang catches wind of Princess Katana, the daughter of the Emperor, who is just known as the Emperor in this. Uh, they seem a little, uh, little into each other, but that doesn't really get followed up on. We will be talking about that later. Uh, however, Katana is sympathetic to Earth. And uh, that will come up later on in the, pl in the plot. While that's going on, Johnny Cage is creeping on Sonya. Hardcore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's that typical action movie beat where, um, uh, you know, the main protagonist is a douche to the love interest and she rebuffs his advances. And you all know he's going to win her over in the end, even though, you know, why? <laughs> and of course, being Hollywood, uh, Liu Kang, an a, a man of Asian descent doesn't uh, go after Sonya, even though he meets her first. It's the two white people get paired up together, and then the Asian man and the vaguely ethnic woman get paired up. Uh, she, she's Puerto Rican. Puerto Rican, that makes sense. Yeah, there you go. Uh, she's Puerto Rican in real life. She's from Outworld in this. Okay, so finally the fights start. Um, Johnny Cage fights uh, mind-controlled Scorpion uh, in the woods, which then switches to, like, some interdimensional hellscape for some reason. Uh, Katana fights Liu Kang, but she throws the fight while, uh, while throwing him this weird riddle limerick that'll allow him to, to defeat uh, Sub-Zero in the next fight. That sort of proves her intentions. And uh, Sonya defeats Kano. And um, that's the end of her arc. Yeah, she gets one fight in the tournament, and it's the guy she's been hunting after, and she handedly beats him, and that's it. Yeah, it's weird that the movie's not even halfway over, and Sonya's character arc is already done. <laughs> uh, they have to they have to make something up for her later on, because, you know, she has to hang out while everybody's fighting everybody else. But, uh, okay, uh, the, the heroes are emboldened, but they do need to throw some setbacks, because this is Act 2 now. Uh, Goro, the champion of the previous nine tournaments, which, as I mentioned before, is a four-armed monster. 
Uh, he is not an awkward Windows 95 screensaver. He's an animatronic robot whose sound effects are provided by Frank Welker. And actually, I think he looks pretty cool. He looks very cool. They And like most of the time, it seems to be somebody wearing the apparatus on them so they can get shots of him walking around. Yeah, it's actually, it, it's held up a lot better than a number of the cheeseball uh, visuals in this film. But uh, Goro just starts wrecking shit, and uh, Sung's just starts stealing souls. Uh, the heroes are demoralized, so it's time for Caucasian Storm God Raiden to sit them down and give him a give him a pep talk. And uh, this scene of the movie just assumes that everyone is a rube because Raiden just flat out states their character arc as if he's reading directly from the template script. And he's like, "Oh, Liu Kang, you want revenge for your brother's death." But you keep running away from your problems. You need to learn how to come uh, get over that. And, you know, switch to Spaceball. You're like, everybody get that? <laughs> uh, Johnny Cage, you're insecure about being perceived as a phony. Sonia, you need to, um... You need to let people in. You keep trying to do go it alone. Which, I, I suppose, is they have to say something because she already took out Kano. Yeah, she did what she came here to accomplish. She really has no more purpose being on this island. So, uh, this, uh, this revs up Johnny Cage. He approaches Shang Tsung and demands a one-on-one -on -one fight with Goro. Um, Tsung, uh, accepts, but he, uh, asks, uh, demands in return that he gets to pick his opponent. And before Raiden can stop him, Cage agrees. Um... Uh, Cage fights Goro, and uh, they go to the edge of a cliff in their fight, and Johnny Cage does the Jean-Claude Van Damme's uh, split kick from Bloodsport, where he punches Goro in the balls, and Goro falls off the cliff. Ha ha ha. Alright, Sung tries to take this in stride, uh, saying that he's going to fight Sonya, and then he kidnaps her to Outworld. And Raiden's like, you schmucks, go get him. Yes, for obvious reasons, Raiden cannot follow into Outworld because rules. Rules. Okay, so uh, Liu Kang and Johnny Cage go to Outworld, and then... Which looks like a 1990s industrial rock music video. Uh, yes, it was filmed in an abandoned steel mill, and oh boy, does it look like it. <laughs> uh, anyways, Liu Kang is suddenly sucker-punched by Reptile that... Uh, that little CGI monster that's been following him around. However, he inhabits a skeleton and turns into a human. Uh, Johnny Cage just sort of sits and chills while they fight. This is easily the best fight scene in the movie. <laughs> and yeah, Johnny Cage really just like... The Liu Kang and Reptile enter a building to fight, and he just... Johnny Cage just sits this one out for the entire fight. Uh, we will be going into that later on. There's a reason. A uh, uh, technical reason. Anyways, after uh, Reptile is dispatched, we uh, we go back to the main action. Our big-lipped alligator moment's over. Uh, Shang Tsung is trying to goad Sonya into fighting him so he can beat her and therefore rule the world, but Raiden prophesizes that Liu Kang has to be the one who does it, so Sonya's just, like, stalling for time. Uh, Cage and Liu Kang meet up with Princess Katana, who helps them infiltrate the fortress, Liu Kang starts fighting Shang Tsung. This is the longest and most elaborate fight in the movie. Eventually, Liu Kang uh, shoots a fireball at Tsung. Tsung falls into a pit and is impaled on a spike. That's a game reference. There are a lot of those. Uh, 
all the characters sort of happily uh, leave because the climax is over and everybody won. Uh, Sonya and Johnny Cage are arm in arm for some reason, even though that moment where Cage was supposed to like win over Sonya never happens. <laughs> like she thinks that he's a douche canoe, and then and then later on they're they're they're, they're lovey dovey. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, especially the last time they interact before the end of the movie is when she's calling him an idiot for challenging Goro one on one and saying that he's going to get the Earth killed. And then at the end, they're just like, oh, well, that was sweet. Yeah. And then out of nowhere, the clouds part. Outworld has decided to invade Earth anyways, despite the fact that they lost. Uh, all of the good guys strike a pose and roll credits. Uh, the strike a pose is an obvious sequel set up, clearly. And uh, I found it was cheesy. I found it to be cheesy when I was 10. <laughs> So anyways, that's the movie. Uh, there are a lot of uh, production stories about this. Not as many as the disastrous Street Fighter film. Uh, the Mortal Kombat movie is smarter than the Street Fighter film in that it has fights in it. <laughs> like, like, they took this fighting game and decided to turn it into a movie and staged fights. So that's one thing they had. Um... One interesting th thing I found out is that apparently Cameron Diaz was supposed to be Sonya at first, but she broke her hand while she was training for it. That seemed like it would be a hell of a get, but uh, I had to remind myself that Cameron Diaz wasn't really a superstar yet. Like, she was a name because she had just done The Mask, but um, there's something about Mary was a couple of years away, so they just found, like, you know, an attractive blonde actress, and when she got injured, they brought in um, Bridget Wilson who was a beauty pageant winner who done some soap operas, and that was the extent of her acting experience, and it very much shows. <laughs> uh, Johnny Cage had a hard time, uh, uh, they had a hard time casting him. The first person they approached was Brandon Lee, and uh, Lee was on board, but he died on the set of The Crow, and they couldn't get him. Uh, afterwards, uh, they approached uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, which would have been a nice little nod, him playing the character who's a parody of him. But he had already committed to playing Guile in the aforementioned Street Fighter disaster, so not that. So they had to settle for Lyndon Ashby. And uh, I found his performance entirely charmless. <laughs> he's, he's, he's basically a bunch of 90s hero cliches rolled up into one man. Uh, yeah, I mean, and there's a way to take that kind of character and make him, you know, charismatic, but... Uh, Ashby doesn't have the chops for it, and the script doesn't do him any favors, but he, he can't make it work. Uh, our Liu Kang was, uh, was Robin Shu. Uh, he doesn't have much of a career outside of these films, except uh, apparently he impressed uh, director Paul W.S. Anderson because he's in all of the Death Race movies. Yeah, that's right. He's, from what I've read, Robin Shu has done a lot of, like, stunt choreography and behind-the-scenes work on movies since Mortal Kombat, but very few starring roles. Yeah, uh, as I mentioned before, the Outworld scenes were, um, were filmed in an abandoned steel mill. Uh, the rest of the scenes were, uh, were, were done in Thailand in very isolated, out-of-the-way areas. Uh, the, uh, the cast, the crew, all the equipment had to be hauled around with boats from place to place because planes and, and, and vehicles couldn't reach it. Uh, this caused some problems, but not nearly as bad as the Street Fighter movie. 
Uh, the most embarrassing thing is that a crew member sort of had to like build an ad hoc uh, outhouse because they got tired of taking everybody out to canoe whenever they needed to, you know, make a poop. Uh, there was a, um, a more elaborate love interest, uh, storyline between Katana and Liu Kang, but it was, um, it was cut for time because we had three main protagonists. Uh, also, um, test audiences were unimpressed with the fights in the movie, so the reptile one was shot later on afterwards and just sort of awkwardly hammered into the film. I think that's why it comes off like a, here's this random thing out of nowhere moment. And also why that CGI reptile that was following them around in the earlier parts of the film just looks so terrible. Even by 1995 standards, it was a total rush job. Okay. Uh, now, going over the various reactions to the film, uh, the one thing that is praised unequivocally without irony or caveats is probably the score. It was um, it was put together by uh, George S. Clinton, and uh, most of his motivation behind it was when he saw an early screening of uh, the Mortal Kombat when it was still you know being focus grouped, and they had just thrown on some canned like John Williams styled rousing orchestral music, and the audiences didn't connect with it. Um, if you know anything about Mortal Kombat, you know that people associated with early '90s European techno. Uh, the most fi famous aspect of the uh, of the games outside of its violence is probably the is probably the techno remix uh, by the Immortals, which is just two random Belgian dudes. Uh, it's just thumping early '90s techno beats while they uh, play sound effects and voiceover effects from the game, and some dude just goes, "Damn that!" <laughs> I find that the more you enunciate it, the less accurate your impression is. <laughs> like, if you are sounding out consonants, you're not sounding like this guy. It's amazing how successful that song is when it's just, like, character names from the game repeated over and over again to music. Well, also, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. So anyways, Clinton approached it with that perspective. Uh, there are a lot of throbbing Euro trash beats in this. Um, he, whenever anything needs to sound vaguely Eastern, he includes taiko drumming and um, uh, tuvan throat singing and occasionally a Japanese wood flute. Uh, however, that is the only reed instrument on hand. The orchestra, when it comes in, is uh, 18 viola, um, uh, 14 cello players, 6 basses, a whole lot of low brass, and um, just timpani drums and other percussion. Uh, it's just no flutes, no oboes, nothing that sounds even remotely feminine. It's a very, very aggressively testosterone uh, 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 score. Other parts have uh, guitar effects added by Buckethead and uh, drumming from Brain, who uh, most people know as the second dude to uh, drum for Primus. And uh, I, I think it mostly works. I... I, I put on the score a couple days ago and listened to it on its own, and yeah, it, it's fun workout music. Now, uh, this film was not screened for uh, for critics before it went to wide release. If you know anything about movies, you know it's a big old red flag. Uh, the studio probably uh, was working on the assumption that critics would hate it, and they were right. <laughs> I have read a lot of circa 1995 reviews about the Mortal Kombat film. Uh, 
Most of them were about how it was vapid, that the acting was terrible, that the plot was awkward, that the dialogue was often unintentionally laughable, um, and some people thought it was a crass ad for the, uh, advertisement for the video games. All of these are fair points. I can't disagree with any point you just stated, but I still love this film. Uh, yes, that brought me up to the uh, Siskel and Ebert re review. Uh, Robert e uh, Roger Ebert thought it was a really mediocre film. Uh, interestingly enough, he thought that the um, that the killing scenes weren't true to the spirit of the games, which I did not expect him to say. <laughs> He's not wrong, too. They're very much toned down for a general moving-going audience. Like, I don't think anybody's head gets explicitly ripped off. We will be getting into that later. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's interesting that uh, Ebert's such a Mortal Kombat purist. <laughs> Maybe he played the games with his kids. Listen, man, he respects source material, okay? <laughs> uh, Gene Siskel actually really liked the movie. Uh, he said it was very silly, but that it was lots of fun, and by the standards of all the other terrible video game movies he's seen, it's easily one of the best ones, which, if someone likes Mortal Kombat, what they say is usually a variation of that. I, I completely agree. I feel similarly. In terms of, not the quality of a movie, but the adaptation of different source material, Mortal Kombat is one of the best video game adaptations. It actually resembles the game it's based on to some degree. I, I want to talk about how sad that is later on. Just, to, <laughs> just Those are the standards we have for video game movies. But, um, it was a very successful film. It made back its budget within a couple of weeks. Um, there was a 1996 uh, animated series that aired on USA for a season after uh, about a year after this film came out. There was a live action show that came out in 1998. I think it was trying to um, capitalize on like Hercules and Xena and all those like syndicated like goofball shows that, uh, that, that kids would watch on like Sunday afternoons. Uh, but uh, the, the most infamous spinoff of this is probably the 1997 direct sequel, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, which um, has kind of over overshadowed this film and how terrible it is. Just spins me on to one of my thematic statements is that uh, if people are looking for like a campy garbage, let's get, uh, let's get drunk or high and make fun of this movie while it's on classic, it's usually, it's usually Mortal Kombat Annihilation. It's because everything bad about Mortal Kombat is even worse than that. It's just a, it's just an endless dumpster fire of a film that, if you come from a background where you appreciated Mortal Kombat as a kid, can be a hilarious watch. <laughs> and I, I wanted to bring that up. It's just like, did, what do you think about Mortal Kombat Annihilation? Just sort of, just sort of pushing this film out of the way, just, uh, just on its campy ridiculousness. It does make me a bit sad because, yeah, Mortal Kombat Annihilation's badness reflects unfavorably on the first movie, and that I don't like that. It doesn't deserve that. Mortal Kombat Annihilation has, is so bad, it ruined another movie's reputation. Not only that, but um, it's just that uh, it's it breaks the ridiculous rules of the first movie. Which is a hard feat to accomplish, but yeah, it does. Also, when I was doing the research for this episode, I looked it up, and apparently Mortal Kombat Annihilation had a higher budget than the first Mortal Kombat, which I have a very hard time believing. I mean, it does look like they went all out on, we'll say, 
in quotes, special effects. And there's like, what, twice the main cast and supporting cast? Uh, yeah, that is something I, um, when I was reading an oral history of the, of the Street Fighter movie, one thing that the producers kept complaining about is that the game developer kept pushing characters on them. They wanted as many characters as possible featured in this movie. And they're just like, we're going to have a hard time writing a story around everything. Uh, but no, here it is. And Mortal Kombat, despite the three main protagonists thing, I think they did a better job. Yeah, I mean, they just sort of minimized the the villainous characters. Like you mentioned, so, uh, Scorpion and Sub-Zero are big names in the game, and they're just sort of henchmen in the movie to make room for the heroes. Yeah, uh, when I was 10 and I saw it, I, I, I thought that was kind of bullshit. Um, I know in the game, Liu Kang is presented as sort of like the main protagonist. He's clearly like the Ryu. Um, his moves are the easiest to learn. Uh, a nine-year-old could figure it out and, like, playing the game for less than an hour. The other characters are a bit trickier, but Sub-Zero was my guy. And he's a fan-favorite character. I'm not the I'm not the only one who got attached to him. He was the first um, Mortal Kombat character to get a spin-off game, I think. That's true, yeah. There was a spin-off Sub-Zero, like, adventure platformer game that didn't do nearly as well as the main series. So they stopped doing that real quick. And I was just thinking, like, you know, why did they reduce Sub-Zero's role? And, I mean, I don't know for sure, but my theory is that, unlike Liu Kang, Johnny Cage, and Sonya Blade, Sub-Zero is wearing this this gi that covers up almost the entirety of his face. Like, you only see a little bit of his eyes, and that interferes with his facial acting. And if you look at Hollywood, they care a lot about the facial acting. Like, if you see any Spider-Man movie... Whenever he's having the final showdown with the main bad guy at the climax of Act 3, they find some way to get Spider-Man's mask off so you can see his eyes, you can see his mouth, you can see him react to things. And this this happens all over the place. Uh, when it comes between plausibility or accuracy, they the Hollywood movie will always veer on the side of... Um, letting you see the actors do the facial acting. Like, you see a lot of movies where doctors are in surgery and they're not wearing any masks, even though that's just horrible. It just spreads <laughs> infection because they want you to see them talk. So if you're going to pick, like, a main popular character to marginalize, it's the one who you can't see completely, I'd say. Yeah, uh, just to add a nice little point onto that, too, for anyone who's not familiar with Mortal Kombat characters, Scorpion, Sub-Zero, and Reptile are all dressed identically, except in different color schemes. Uh, yes, this is known in the industry as palette swapping. Uh, back, in, back in the day, um, memory, like hardware space, was an issue, so in order to have multiple characters, often they would just take this one guy and just, like change the color of them and tell you it's a new guy. Mortal Kombat's pretty infamous for this. Yeah, it works really well with the ninja characters who are wearing gi, who, you know, just change the color and give them different moveset. Oh, it's a different guy. Yeah, uh, getting back to something you brought up earlier, uh, Mortal Kombat is occasionally cited as one of the best video game movies ever made, if not the best, and um, this, is, this is basically textbook damning with faint praise. <laughs> because no Mortal Kombat isn't a good movie by, like, any reasonable stretch of the cinematic imagination. Can't disagree with that. And, um, not only that, but this movie came out, you know, closing in on 30 years ago, and, uh, it, it's still up there. It's still in the top five. That, that's saying something, too. The mid-90s are not a high point for cinema. <laughs> so the cheesy things are extra cheesy in that time period. 
like, yeah, what, like, what is the best video game movie of all time? Like, uh, Detective Pikachu, um, Wreck-It Ralph, if it counts. I mean, vaguely. Um, I remember liking, uh, the, the, the Final Fantasy movie in theaters, but I haven't seen it since then, and even then I was kind of creeped out by the Polar Express, um, deepfake CGI. And that one doesn't often get the pass because it's not based on any of the games, it's an original story. Yeah, it just uses the name. My vote tends to go towards the Silent Hill movie, but even that one, like, it matches the tone and all, um, a lot of aspects of the games, but the plot is a mishmash of the first three games all thrown together. So it's a great movie that, uh, ad- uh, that adapts the style, but it still fails on being an adaptation of a singular game. So that's why Mortal Kombat's still my number one for video game adaptations. Like you said, at its best... It's a uh, ironic laugh at this movie. <laughs> uh, if I might add too, like for a great comparison for how you mentioned Mortal Kombat succeeds at doing what it does. It, it includes a lot of fights, which Street Fighter didn't. Uh, the more recent Assassin's Creed movie adaptation, Assassin's Creed is known to be a video game series where you play as an assassin who travels around on foot, hopping from rooftop to rooftop and killing people with stealthy moves and hidden blades. The Assassin's Creed movie is four-fifths of the movie is him in a lab being told stuff. There's barely any assassining in that movie. That's where Hollywood goes wrong with video game adaptations. Yeah, yeah. the Mortal Kombat movie does know its audience and how they throw throw out nods constantly. Like, every conversational aside in the game is just sort of shoehorned in the film somewhere. They They find an excuse to say fatality. They find an excuse to say flawless victory. Uh, Liu Kang does his dumb bicycle kick move against Reptile. Um, yeah, like everyone does their signature move. Uh, the one thing that it can't do is the gore because it's PG-13, which is another thing I wanted to bring up. Um, Mortal Kombat is one of those franchises that is not appropriate for children, but is definitely marketed to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 80s were rife with this. You know, RoboCop, um, Rambo got a Saturday morning cartoon somehow. That one still frightens me. Yeah, uh, the Toxic Avenger got a Saturday morning cartoon. A trauma film. If you know what trauma is, you should be scared. And yeah, getting back to those 1993 congressional hearings about violence in video games. uh, Yeah, uh... Boone, Ed Boone, he uh, he actually sympathized with them to a point. He's like, I have a 10-year-old. I wouldn't let him anywhere near any game I worked on. <laughs> and uh, however, Tobias, he wasn't he wasn't as on board with the correctional hearing. He thought it was a smokescreen. He thought they were trying to deflect from things. He's probably right. Uh, <laughs> you know, because whenever, whenever there's a mass shooting, a bunch of reactionaries will come out and blame violent video games rather than, you know, a 13-year-old being able to easily acquire a firearm without going through a background check. <laughs> or if we're talking about adults, I mean, it's young people too. Uh, people with serious mental health issues who are unable to get them treated. Yeah, and the, the thing is, after those hearings, Joseph Lieberman just kept right at it. I mean, if you're um, if you're a millennial, I believe your uh, video game boogeyman of choice is Jack Thompson. But uh, yeah, this doesn't let up. They're 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 
prominent whipping boy, which does have parallels with the PG-13 rating, because once again, these games, even though being incredibly violent, were still marketed to nine-year-olds, and the studio knew this, and so they couldn't give this movie a hard R, because then their target demo wouldn't be able to go in and see it without a, without a guardian, and they probably wouldn't make their money back. This happens to a lot of action movies that sort of get neutered for marketability uh, purposes. I think uh, Die Hard 4 is an infamous example of this. Like, Bruce Willis can't even say yippee ki motherfucker. Yeah, it gets muffled over with a gunshot. This is just, you know, an, an interesting aspect of uh, just cross-media censorship. In this case, sort of self-imposed. And, uh, uh, another thing I sort of want to get into is just the cultural appropriation aspect of it. I brought up how Mortal Kombat is, I think, the video game uh, version of Carl Douglas's Kung Fu fighting. <laughs> a lot of this uh, film has a lot of very superficial uh, 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 allusions to uh, martial arts films and Eastern spirituality with the yin-yangs everywhere and all that, and it's largely pretty shallow. Oh, yeah. I mean, let's, let's just talk about the elephant in the room that is Raiden. Uh, yeah. The uh, Chinese, or is it Cambodian thunder god, I believe, played by Christopher Lambert. You know, the Highlander. <laughs> yeah, I, I did some digging around. I don't think Raiden is based on, like, anything from any kind of eastern mythological discipline of any sort oh no i totally understand that i'm just talking about in the universe of the game but no of course not <laughs> yeah like all of these all of these warrior monks are just standing around interacting with their caucasian god and they're just like this is our god this isn't weird what are you talking about and the best part of that scene too is not five seconds beforehand Liu kang's uh grandfather i believe and like he he yells at him because Liu Kang moved to America and that culture has muddled his brain. And then their white god shows up and tells them that they have to fight in the tournament. And they're like, "Yes, he's very wise." Yes, when you talk about the white savior complex, this film's very literal about it. <laughs> uh, that being said, there is one aspect of uh, uh, of this film that uh, you wanted to talk about. Um, I, I asked you what well what, what themes you wanted to bring up, and uh, you wanted to bring up Luke Kang's relationship with his brother, which is which is independent of this film alone. Yeah. So, uh, like I mentioned before, I I'm 32 as of this recording, so I was very young when this movie came out, and I have a brother who's five years older than me. So a lot of pop culture I absorbed from him, scary movies, action movies, violent video games, all that. So the like the first Mortal Kombat game doesn't really have a story beyond we got to fight in this tournament to save Earth. And for the movie, they introduced the storyline where Liu Kang has a younger brother who believed in all of this mythology that they were taught as kids. And he's like, I'm going to go fight in the Mortal Kombat tournament. I'm going to save Earth. And Shang Tsung kills his brother. And so there's a lot of guilt riding on Liu Kang throughout the movie. Um, not the kind of storyline you expect in this big, dumb action film that you paid money to go see. But it struck a chord with me as a young kid because, you know, I think it's every younger sibling's kind of um, dream or expectation that their older siblings are going to protect them and take care of them. So I just remember being very young and moved at the end when 
Liu Kang has defeated Shang Tsung and all of the souls of his victims are released and Liu Kang gets to say goodbye to his brother and his brother's like, I don't blame you. You know, I made my own choices and they they hug and they embrace and then he goes up to heaven or wherever. And I just thought, wow, that's really touching and, and sweet in a movie about people fighting each other and dropping each other onto spike traps. Yeah, it's the it's the only part of the dialogue where it sounds like anyone's trying. Yeah, def- most definitely. I don't know who we can credit for that bit of writing in this movie, but bravo to them for <laughs> having the balls to be like, guys, I want to put the storyline in this Mortal Kombat feature. Uh, yeah, uh, I think I... Uh... I think the best thing, the uh, best note to end this on is that apparently there is a proper Mortal Kombat film coming out soonish, and this one is going to be a hard R because everyone born in the '80s who grew up playing this game is now old enough to buy a ticket, and I guess they can just they can just bank on us being interested. <laughs> yeah, from uh, from what I've seen, there was this very successful like web series that came out uh, a couple years ago. That was like R-rated leaning, and it did well enough to get attention, so now somebody got the, the movie rights and had an idea, and yeah, like you said, there's going to be another feature in theaters that'll be hard R, hopefully it'll be good. I mean, we just need it to be fun, you know? Like, we need people killing each other in cool, crazy martial arts ways. Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not expecting this to be The Graduate or Ibsen or anything, but if it could be, like, a trashy exploitation film that's just over-the-top ludicrously violent like the games, I'd probably enjoy it. Um, While doing the research for this film, I stumbled across a West African unlicensed Mortal Kombat game that some guy just made in his backyard with his buddies for, like, 200 bucks, and it's way more fun than this movie. (laughs) Like, like hunt it down on YouTube. It is it, it is worth checking out. It is everything you would want from a ridiculous franchise like this. Nice. nice. Like I, I I think I think Midway should just hunt these guys down and just just make it official. <laughs> okay. Well, that's everything I wanted to talk about. Is there uh, is there any points you wanted to bring up? Um. Only that if if you haven't before in your life, track down the soundtrack to the Mortal Kombat feature film and enjoy your afternoon because it is awesome all right well thanks for joining me pete thanks for having me all right good night everybody